Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. This is Law for Virginia Law Enforcement Officers, and we're talking about what you need to know as a law enforcement officer in Virginia to do your job and do it well. Constitutional law, statutory law, cases from the federal courts, from the state courts, the fundamentals that you need to protect your community, to strengthen your community, to be better, uh, to get better at this. And, and thank you so much for all the feedback, for all the likes and the comments, for sharing the podcast with your colleagues. I hope it's useful for you and I want it to be useful for you. And please let me know if there's ways that I can make it more useful for you uh, as a tool to, uh, to get better at what you do. Uh, so often, and I, it really encourages me to hear, I meet law enforcement officers in Virginia who are just trying to get better at what they do uh, and, uh, and find out what the law really is because it's complicated. It's hard for us to understand. So today we're going to talk about a pretty simple question. You get a dispatch and the dispatch says, respond to this bar or this store or this location. There's a person here with a gun. And there's a person with a gun, maybe there's a disturbance, there's an argument, there's a person is dealing drugs, the person is, you know, engaging in some kind of behavior, but they have a gun. And so you get there, what can you do? What is the authority that you have? This is a question that's addressed by the Court of Appeals this week in a brand new case called Alfred versus Commonwealth. And it's an unpublished case, but it's from the Court of Appeals. And it's pretty extensive and involves a lot of argument of this issue. And it really brings to mind another case from the federal court from the Fourth Circuit called U.S. versus Mitchell, which came out in June of of this year. And it also talks about the same issue. So we're going to talk about both cases today and talk about this basic question, right? You get a tip of some kind. Is it anonymous? Is it from a confidential informant? Is it from a fellow officer? Is it from a a known citizen? And that's going to be a really important question when we address this question. So what is the Alford case all about? The Alford case is a case that happens in Richmond. And what happens is there's a a supermarket called Wally's Supermarket. It's a high crime area, high drug area. It's one of the few open air drug market areas in Richmond. Uh, Lots of guns, lots of violence. And an officer uh, who has 22 years on the force responds to a dispatch. The dispatch indicates that uh, there was a, a male last seen wearing a, ball, a black ball cap, red and white jacket, and black sweatpants armed with a gun, um, and that he was engaged, that he had drugs on his person, that he was in Wally's supermarket. The indication was that the individual uh, was possibly a felon, um, but, uh, but didn't have the lawful authority to carry a firearm. And so this information in hand, the officer responds to the supermarket. Um, When he shows up, he notices that there is somebody who matches this exact description that he's given inside the store. The person is standing in the center of the aisle of the exit. He's looking at his phone. There's another guy standing there who's looking over his shoulder. Um, They're really close to the cash register. They're not buying anything. They're not shopping. Um, They're blocking the aisle, certainly, so nobody else can get in or out but they're not doing anything inside the phone. So the officer observes this. He walks outside, he talks to some other officers, and then a few minutes later comes back inside the store. When he comes back inside of the store, the officer uh, walks up to the individual. Um, The the guy tries to walk away. He says, hey, let's step to the back of the store for a moment. The guy keeps putting his hands in his pockets uh, against instructions. The officer finally pats him down, finds the gun, finds drugs, and he gets arrested. So the first question you want to ask is, where does this information come from, right? This dispatch information. How does the officer learn that there's somebody inside a supermarket 
who's got a gun and potentially drugs and potentially not lawfully allowed to uh, possess a firearm. Well, the information comes from a confidential and reliable informant. And this informant provided the information to, not to the responding officer, who's Officer Keys, but to an earlier officer named Officer Forstall. Now, Officer Forstall knew this informant, and he knew the informant to be confidential and reliable. And uh, Officer Forstall provided the information to dispatch, and then dispatch provided the information to Officer Keys. So it seems like it'd be pretty, this is a pretty straightforward case, right? Um, from the, on the eyes of the Virginia Court of Appeals, they look at it and they say the search, excuse me, the seizure of Mr. Alford, the suspect in this case, is lawful. And uh, the pat-down is therefore lawful, and, uh, and so they affirm the conviction. They look at it and they say Officer Keyes had a reasonable basis to investigate the facts. Um, he had direct knowledge of the high crime area. He knew that firearms were a problem in the area. Um, he got a description, and Mr. Alford was the only person who matched that description. It was a pretty specific description of clothing, of location. He gets to the store. Alford's the only guy there. His behavior is suspicious. Um, and so it wasn't, un and again, because he's loitering, he's just standing around, he's looking at this phone, he's not shopping, he's not doing anything else, this goes on for a long time. He's got this other guy standing there looking over his shoulder, he's also not shopping and not doing anything. And so the court says, you know, hey, let's look at Terry, right? In Terry versus Ohio, which is a case, you know, which is a sort of seminal stop and frisk case from 1960s, you know, in that case, the officer sees somebody who's not doing anything criminal, but what they're doing definitely looks like they're casing a place, intending to rob it. And so even though that behavior is in and itself innocent, it's enough to, to, to justify briefly stopping, detaining that person, determining whether or not that, whether they are not, in fact, armed. But <clears throat> the case is nonetheless a little bit controversial, and Justice Huff in this case writes a pretty strenuous dissent. Justice Huff says that the officer didn't have reasonable suspicion to stop Mr. Alford. And the core of his argument, I think, comes from this issue, which is that when Officer Keyes responds to this call, he's responding not to Officer Forstall saying, hey, I just talked to a confidential reliable informant, and the informant told me that there's an individual with this particular description inside the store who's uh, selling drugs and carrying a gun and, and probably a felon or possibly a felon, but somebody who's not allowed to carry firearms. And that's not what happens in this case, right? What happens in this case is that Officer Keyes just looks at his screen and he sees a dispatch, and it says... Um, reported, you know, there's a report that there's a person inside of this store who's got a gun and drugs and shouldn't have a gun um, and he's carrying the gun concealed. And so from the eyes of Justice Huff, what he says is that for all intents and purposes, the information that Officer Keyes, the responding officer, gets is basically from an unidentified and therefore anonymous source. There's no, in the eyes of, of Justice Huff, the dissenting judge, there's no way that Officer Keyes can provide, can, 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 can provide any reliability or substantiate any reliability, uh, any reason to rely on the information. And therefore, uh, under the Fourth Amendment, it's, it's not really a, a information that he, upon which he can uh, act. The... Um, the, he makes the analogy, Justice Huss makes the analogy to a, a Virginia Supreme Court case from 2001 called Harris versus Commonwealth. And in Harris, 
uh, a dispatcher, a police dispatcher, related information from an anonymous caller that there was a black male wearing jeans, a white t-shirt, and a checkered jacket who's armed and selling drugs. So officers show up. Um, they see that he's standing near a bench close to a no trespassing sign. They don't see anything that corroborates the anonymous tip. Um, and so they, they, they stop the guy. They pat him down. They fire a gun. They find a gun on the suspect's person. They charge him. The court, the Virginia Supreme Court, reverses the conviction, saying, that, "Look, there's nothing in this tip that is corroborating. Um, it corroborates itself. There's nothing in the tip that makes it reliable. It's not from a known person. It's not from a known citizen. It's not from a confidential, reliable informant. When the officers show up, they don't observe anything that corroborates the tip. They simply act on it. It's basically an anonymous tip." And therefore, uh, there was not sufficient reasonable suspicion to stop this individual, detain them, and pat them down. And here, Justice Huff makes reference to a line in Kansas versus Glover, which is a Supreme Court case from earlier this year, where in a footnote, the, uh, the court said, to alleviate any doubt, we reiterate that the Fourth Amendment requires an individualized suspicion that a particular citizen was engaged in a particular crime, right? And so he's emphasizing here that we need to have some specific information from a reliable source that indicates that somebody is, is doing something that's actually an actual crime, right? And here we have somebody who's saying that this guy is holding a gun, which is important to us as law enforcement officers, but in the eyes of Justice Huff, it's not a crime to simply possess a firearm, right? And when I read this line, I thought a lot about uh, a Justice Wynn's dissent in the, ca in the case from earlier this year called U.S. versus Mitchell, which we'll get to in a second. But for Justice Wynn, he's very skeptical, and Justice Huff is very skeptical of just calls that say, hey, there's somebody out here and they've got a gun. Because that's not a criminal offense, right? Just having a gun is not a criminal offense. It might be a criminal offense if it's unlawfully concealed. It might be a criminal offense if the person's a felon and they're possessing the firearm. It might be a criminal offense if they're brandishing it, which is, you know, causing reasonable fear in the mind of another. But just simply having a gun is not a criminal offense, right? So getting back to the Alfred case, what you see here is a real disagreement between the majority and the dissenting judge, Justice Huff, as to, in a lot of ways, whether or not you can, uh, the fact that somebody is a confidential, reliable informant and provides information to Officer A, and then Officer A provides that information to dispatch, and then dispatch provides it to Officer B, <clears throat> you know, what, what can Officer B use or rely upon from that reliability? Does he have to go back and talk to Officer A and find out about the confidentiality of, about the confidential reliable informant and, and, and assure himself that this person is reliable? You know, what's really required? And Justice Huff doesn't really clarify that. The majority doesn't specifically say that, um, you know, either that just that the officer who responded sufficiently or insufficiently or did this particular procedure to make sure the information was reliable either. He, the majority basically says it was on the screen that, you know, the officer had received the information from a reliable informant. And so therefore, because it was on the screen, then the responding officer could rely on that. The responding officer that never says he was looking at the screen and saw that. So it's just interesting. I think the lesson here, and, we're, and I'm going to just give you the takeaway now, and we'll talk about the federal case in a second. The lesson here is the court either way is really focusing on <clears throat> where did this information come from? And how does the officer who's responding know that this information is reliable or not? 
if you're responding to this dispatch, it's really your responsibility as a responding officer to say, this is what the dispatch says. It says, person here has gun, person in the store has gun, person in this bar has a gun, person in this location has a gun. But what? why do I trust this information? Where did it come from? Did it come from an anonymous tip? Did it come from a known citizen? Did it come from a confidential informant? That's the issue that comes up in this Fourth Circuit case called U.S. versus Mitchell, which comes out from the Fourth Circuit in June, June 30th of 2020. And what happens in U.S. versus Mitchell is uh, officers receive a report of a large fight, an assault, and a person with a gun at a bar. They arrive in the scene, and a bystander yells out, there's a guy with this description, he gives a description of the guy, Um, he says, that guy's got a gun, and he's leaving the scene, he's walking away in this direction. So an officer hears this, and within about a minute, finds the defendant who matches this very specific description, and is walking in the same direction that the the, uh, bystander indicated. The officer stops him, frisks him, finds a gun, and takes him into custody. The guy's a convicted felon, and again, he moves to suppress. In Mitchell, the Fourth Circuit says it was reasonable for the officers to infer from the dispatch that the person who was involved in the gun was uh, was involved in the fight that that resulted in the assault, and it was there. It was also reasonable for the officers to infer that the information communicated over the radio about a man with a gun leaving the scene of the crime also related to the person involved in the assault. So the court explains here that police observation of an individual fitting a police dis- description of a person involved in a disturbance near in time and geographic location to the disturbance establishes reasonable suspicion that the individual is the subject of the dispatch. So here, the 911 call and the bystander's tip together provided reasonable suspicion to believe that the departing person, this person walking away, was connected with the illegal activity, which is the assault, and justified the investigatory stop. It's interesting because here, when the officer responds to the scene, there's this person who yells out, there's a guy with this description, he's walking away with a gun and he points in the direction. You know, is that person an anonymous tip? Are they a a known citizen? Are they a confidential informant? If he's an anonymous tip, then what we really end up with is a situation like Florida versus JL, which is a U.S. Supreme Court case um, back in 2000, where police receive a call from an unknown person that says there's a young black male wearing a plaid shirt and standing at a buck stop carrying a gun. Officers show up, they pat the guy down, and they get the gun. And the U.S. Supreme Court says that there's no reasonable suspicion for that, right? That's There's no reliability to that, and they suppress that. That's like that Harris case I was telling you about from, the, from Virginia, which would happen right around the same time as JL. Again, some anonymous tipster just calling in saying there's a guy with a gun, that doesn't cut it. But here, the court in Mitchell says the person at the bar who's pointing away, it's the officers responding and saying that there's a guy with this description walking in this direction, carrying a gun, he's, uh, he's speaking face-to-face with a police officer. And so the officer in the scene can, is, can uh, evaluate that person's basis of knowledge, their veracity, look at their demeanor, um, see them face-to-face. And again, it's important here, the officers are responding already having received another 911 call saying, again, there's a fight here and there's a guy here with a gun, which they can use in conjunction with this bystander's tip and together build reasonable suspicion. Um, the bystander's reporting, you know, in public, he's near the, he's nearby the incident, right after the incident took place. He's exposing himself to not just criminal prosecution for lying to the police, but also potential retaliation for, for cooperating with the police. That makes him more reliable. So the court found that it was sufficient to uh, rely on that person. 
They make an analogy to a case called Alabama versus White, which is another U.S. Supreme Court case. And in Alabama versus White, an anonymous person had called police to report a defendant was in possession of cocaine. This person provides, though, details. They say, hey, look, this person's going to walk out of this apartment building. They're going to get into this particular car. They're going to go in this particular direction. And so the officers show up. They observe all this. All these, all their observations corroborate this predictive information provided by this tipster. And the U.S. Supreme Court says, well, that's different because here, even though you have an anonymous tipster, there's information that the police collect when they show up that corroborates it, right? And if you think about it, Mitchell, they get information. It's basically anonymous from some, some 911 caller who says, there's a fight and there's a guy here with a gun. You know, please respond, please help. They show up, and as soon as they show up, they see this, you know, people are running in all kinds of directions. There's people yelling, and there's a person saying, there, there, there's a guy with a gun, there's a guy with a gun, and this is, you know, this is the guy's description. He's going this way. And that, again, corroborates that 911 call. Um, you know, U.S. versus Griffin's another good example of this. <clears throat> U.S. versus Griffin is a case, it's a Fourth Circuit case where somebody calls 911 and says there's a guy with a gun. So officers respond. <clears throat> Here, they speak face-to-face with somebody at this motel where the call comes from, and the person says to the officers, there, that's the guy who's driving by carrying the gun. So officers stop the person, get seize the gun. And <clears throat> just like in Mitchell with this bystander, in U.S. versus Griffin, the court says officers observed the, the informant's physical appearance. They observed the location. They could have tracked him down to hold him accountable if his accusations had proven false. Um, the informant met with police in public. He exposed himself, therefore, to retaliation from the defendant as well. He was in close proximity to the reported activity. And again, it's a high crime area, so officers are familiar with the area. Now, I want to emphasize, of course, being in a high crime area doesn't subject anybody in the high crime area to, to being stopped. And that's not sufficient reason to detain somebody. But it does tend to corroborate the information that the officers receive from the informant. <clears throat> um, another good example of this in practice is U.S. versus Perkins. Um, this is a case where, again, an anonymous tipster says there's two white guys who just showed up in a red car with a white stripe. They're uh, pointing and displaying rifles in a residential area. So officers show up. What do they see? They see two guys in a red car with a white stripe, these two white guys. They see one of the guys. He's known to the officers as a drug user. Um, the officers show up, and the car starts to drive away. So the officers stop the vehicle. And here, the court again finds there was sufficient reasonable suspicion. It was The stop was proper. The stop was lawful. The pat-down was lawful. Because even though the tip was anonymous, and even though the officers didn't have a chance to assess the tipster's credibility, um, they knew that the tipster was in close proximity to the reported activity, had personally uh, observed both people, and then the officers are able to confirm the tip's reliability with their own knowledge of the area and their observations. So, you know, what's the takeaway from this, right? Um, If... You know, again, if you've got information from a dispatch, uh, my colleague Brian Porter likes to always say when we when he trains, you can't treat dispatch as the word of God, right? I mean, you, you know, here in Mitchell, the dispatch stated in the lot, advised about 30 people involved, advised, heard someone say they had a gun, right? So who, when you read that dispatch, you ought to be asking yourself, who advised this information? Where does this come from? What reason do I have to think that anything in here 
is true. And you may have to act very quickly. You, and I recognize that. And you may have to respond very quickly. There may not be a lot of time. But if you're going to make the decision, I'm going to detain somebody, I'm going to pat somebody down, I'm going to seize somebody, then just as in Mitchell and just as in Alford and just as in all these other cases that we've talked about today, the court's going to require that you have reasonable, articulable suspicion to do that. The court's going to require that you ha that your information be reliable. And your information might have come from an anonymous tipster. It might have come from a 911 call. And 911 calls aren't necessarily anonymous, right? Um, Navarrete versus California is a case, it's a U.S. Supreme Court case, where they found that the 911 call was not an anonymous tip because uh, the person who called 911 was traceable. We knew who the caller, we knew something about the caller, we knew their phone number, the caller knew they could be held responsible. If they were giving false information, the police could track them down. So, you know, a 911 call might be anonymous, it might be semi-anonymous, but maybe it's information from somebody that you see face-to-face -face that you talk to. Now, you might not know that person, person's name, but if you can at least talk to them face-to-face, -face, that puts them at a higher level than an anonymous tipster. Or maybe it comes from a confidential, reliable informant. But it's got to come from somewhere, and you've got to figure out, why am I relying on this information? I mean, if you're talking face-to-face -face with somebody, not an anonymous person, um, if they're not some unknown caller, unknown location, if somebody right there on the scene is giving you information, even if you don't have their name, if they're a bystander at an active crime scene who's speaking face-to-face -face with you, and you can establish their demeanor, their knowledge, their, their veracity, then that makes them much, much, much more reliable than just that person who's randomly calling uh, police or calling in a tip, 911, or just something on the screen on dispatch with no explanation. Their physical and temporal proximity to the criminal activity gives them credibility automatically. Um, you know, and so you think about uh, you know, this particular case here in, in Mitchell, Justice Wynn is very critical of the officers because they don't do that kind of assessment. And Justice Wynn is, a, just like Justice Huff in the Alford case, is very concerned that police officers or, or, or law enforcement in general is, um, are seizing people just because there's a report that they have a gun. And there's no investigation or there's no substantiation that the carrying of the gun is unlawful. And you see this from Justice Wynn even a few years ago in the Robinson case. In an earlier podcast, we talked about this in the, when we talked about the Robinson case. As you remember, you, you may or may not remember that in the uh, Robinson case, that was a case where officers had also received a, uh, a tip. They had received an anonymous phone call that a person was uh, in an area known for drug activity, had a loaded gun concealed in his pocket, and had just gotten into a car. So officers respond, they see the car, uh, the car commits a traffic violation, they stop the vehicle, they've got this anonymous tip that this person has got a firearm, and so they end up patting down the passenger and find the gun. And in that case, the uh, Justice Wynn in the Fourth Circuit had expressed some real concern that um, just because somebody has a gun why does that give law enforcement the ability to pat them down? In West Virginia, you're not required to have a uh, to have a permit to carry a concealed firearm. So even though the officers during the course of the stop had developed reasonable suspicion to believe that the passenger in the car 
had a firearm. And they did. I mean, they, they got independent reasonable suspicion that the passenger was carrying a firearm in Robinson. Um, they pat him down. But, you know, carrying a firearm without a permit isn't a crime in, in, in West Virginia. Justice Wynn is, is concerned here that officers are just searching people because uh, of their association with firearms. And having a gun is not necessarily illegal. Um, and so in the Mitchell case, in the eyes of Justice uh, Wynn, who's dissenting in this case, who, he disagrees with the majority opinion, he disagrees, and he thinks that the search of Mr. Mitchell was unlawful. He says, you know, here police respond, responded to report, uh, reports of a bar disturbance. They're told somebody has a gun, which is lawful. Again, this is a West Virginia case in, in Mitchell. Um, so just because somebody has a gun doesn't mean that they're committing a crime. No specific evidence links Mitchell to any crime. Um, even the calls from dispatch, they didn't say the guy with the gun was involved in the assault or committed the assault or was perpetrating any particular crime. Just that there's a disturbance and there's a guy here who has a gun, which, you know, just as, and Justice Wynn is correct, it's not a crime to have a gun. Um, so here he says that's not enough reason to detain Mr. Mitchell. In Justice Wynn's analysis, <clears throat> Mr. Mitchell is just uh, a bystander in the midst of a, a large and chaotic disturbance um, who, who's just there at the scene with a gun and, and he gets stopped by police. But ultimately, the Fourth Circuit disagrees with that and they find in this case that, you know, they receive the report of the person with a gun. It's right where the assault occurs. They show up and right at the scene of the assault, a bystander says, there's a guy with a gun leaving the area, heading in this particular direction. He gives a very specific description. And in the eyes of the Fourth Circuit, it's reasonable for the officers to infer from the dispatch as respect. Uh, and they look at the dispatch. They actually <clears throat> want to see the CAD sheet itself. That's really important information for them. Um, it was reasonable for them to infer from that dispatch that the person with the gun was involved in the fight that resulted in the assault victim. And it was entirely reasonable for the officers to infer that the information they received um, about the person with the gun was related to the same person, and therefore there was reasonable for suspicion for the stop. So both in the Alfred case and also in the, um, in the Mitchell case that we talked about just now, you have a situation where officers are responding to dispatches for a person who's carrying a firearm, who's either engaged in criminal activity or unlawfully carrying the firearm in some way. And I think the lesson that I would take from these cases, even though both of these uh, searches are affirmed by the Fourth Circuit and by the Court of Appeals, is <clears throat> they're affirmed because the officers somehow are able to either corroborate details of the tip that they're receiving, or, or, or in addition, uh, there's some reliability to the information that they're receiving uh, that this person has a gun is engaging in criminal activity. The mere fact of the dispatch alone is not going to cut it, right? If you get a dispatch and it says, person standing in the park uh, unlawfully carrying a firearm, what are you going to be able to do with that? And the answer is nothing. I mean, that, that's not, you could walk up and have a conversation with the person. Certainly that's, you know, you're not required to have any reason to have a conversation with somebody. But Without any corroborating details, without establishing a reliability or basis of knowledge for that call, for that information, that's that's just an anonymous tip, right? Even though it comes from dispatch, even though it comes from uh, your CAD screen, even though it comes from your mobile database or your mobile computer, it's your responsibility as a responding officer to make your own evaluation as to where did this information come from and why am I relying on it? 
Can I corroborate it? Can I not corroborate it? Is there something else that corroborates it, maybe external, like somebody else is on the scene uh, also agrees this person has been uh, engaging in some kind of you know, activity and some kind of behavior that indicates criminal behavior? Um, do you observe some indication the person's carrying a firearm or engaging this legal, legal activity? Um, do you know this person? Do they have a criminal history? Uh, is it a high crime area? Is it an area known for this particular criminal activity? Is a factor, but recognize that that factor alone is only going to corroborate in some way slightly the information. But again, the courts are very careful that just because somebody's in a high crime area and a tip comes in, they're engaged in criminal activity, doesn't mean they get stopped, right? That's jail versus Florida. Um, you know, somebody's standing on a street corner, it's a high crime area. Somebody calls in and says, there's this kid on the street corner, here's a description, he's got a gun. They just jump out and grab him, right? That's not enough. That's not going to cut it. And, uh, and, and I hope that's the lesson that you take from these cases. They are really complicated. They're very fact-specific, and, uh, and, and the court's going to want to see that CAD information. They're going to want to know where the information came from, so make sure that you do preserve it if there is a motion to suppress down the road. It's interesting because in the Mitchell case, when the motion to suppress comes, it's four and a half years after the incident takes place. And so the officer who responded initially to that bar when the bystander yells out and gives a description and points down the road, that was just an oral statement from a bystander. He didn't, four and a half years later, didn't even remember who the person was. He hadn't written it down exactly in his report, and so he's trying to testify from memory. Um, that's really difficult to do, and so hopefully you're doing a good job of documenting these cases and documenting the information you have on the scene because you never know how long it's going to be before the defendant finally decides to show up to court after failing to appear, you know, however many dozens of times and... Um, you know, getting continuances and whatnot. Oh, how many, you know, when is it going to be that you have to testify? So just keep that in mind. So other than that, that's what I got for you guys today. I hope today's discussion was interesting and helpful to you. Uh, if you like the podcast, tell your friends. If you don't like the podcast, don't tell your friends. But for today, that's all from me. That's all from Big E. Please stay safe out there. Have a wonderful holiday. And don't get captured.